And turn in your Bibles to Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 16 as Pastor Bruce continues his series looking at the life of Abraham. As I was reading this passage this morning in preparation, this is a head scratcher, this passage. So I'm, I'm excited for Pastor Bruce to, to dive into this. So very interesting indeed. Follow along as I read. We'll read the whole chapter. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and maybe that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Berlathorai. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, may you just be with Pastor Bruce, Lord, as he brings the message today. Lord, open our hearts, open our ears, Lord. May we be focused on what you have for us in store today. Thank you most of all for Jesus, and it's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to keep your Bibles open to chapter 16 here in Genesis, a head-scratching chapter indeed, as it is alluded to. We are continuing in our series through uh, the life of Abraham, taking a journey with him, and it's chapters 12 through 25, and we're now coming into the middle of his life, if you will. With that in mind, Larry Walters, some of you, most of you probably do not know Larry Walters. He is forever known, though, as Lawn Chair Larry. 
The reason he's known as Lawn Chair Larry is because after he made a 45-minute flight in a homemade aircraft made of 45 helium-filled weather balloons attached to a patio chair. Let me give you the background. Larry Walters had often dreamed of flying but was unable to become a pilot in the U.S. Air Force because of his very poor eyesight. He first thought of using weather balloons to fly at age 13 after seeing them hanging from the ceiling of a military surplus store. In 1982, he decided to try his flying idea. His intention was to float over the Mojave Desert and then use a pellet gun to burst some of the balloons in order to land. And so Walters and his girlfriend purchased 45 eight-foot weather balloons, and obtained helium tanks from California toy time balloons. And on July 2nd, 1982, Walters attached 43 of the balloons to his lawn chair, filled them with helium, put on a parachute, strapped himself into the chair in the backyard of his home in San Pedro, California. He took his pellet gun, he packed a CB radio, And in addition, he also packed sandwiches, beer, and a camera. When his friends cut the cord that tied his lawn chair to his Jeep, Walter's lawn chair rose rapidly to an altitude of about 16,000 feet and was spotted from no less than two commercial airliners. He slowly drifted over Long Beach and crossed the primary approach corridor of Long Beach Airport. After 45 minutes in the sky, Walters pulled out his pellet gun, shot several balloons, taking care not to unbalance the load. He then accidentally dropped his pellet gun overboard. As you might imagine, he descended slowly until the balloon's dangling cables got caught in a power line. The power line broke, causing a 20-minute electrical blackout. But he landed unharmed on the ground when he was immediately arrested by members of the Long Beach Police Department. Regional Safety Inspector Neil Savoy was reported to have said, we know he broke some part of the Federal Aviation Act. As soon as we decide which part it is, some type of charge will be filed. If he had a pilot's license, we'd suspend that, but he doesn't. Walters initially was fined $4,000 for violations, including operating an aircraft within airport traffic area without establishing and maintaining two-way communications with the control tower. Walters appealed. The fine was reduced to $1,500. Just after landing, Walters spoke to the press saying, and I quote, it was something I had to do. I had this dream for 20 years, and if I hadn't done it, I think I would have ended up in the funny farm. Frustrated of his dream of becoming a pilot. Lawn Chair Larry took matters into his own hands, and he ended up making things worse in his life. Sure, the stunt made headline news back in 1982. In fact, he became an overnight celebrity, appearing on The Tonight Show and Late Night with David Letterman, but fame is a very fickle mistress, and it didn't go well for Larry in subsequent years. In fact, he quit his truck driving job and tried his hand as a motivational speaker, which did not pan out. After that, Larry essentially withdrew from public life, spending a lot of time just 
hiking in the mountains in California and doing volunteer work in the U.S. Forest Service. But in 1993, at only the age of 44, he committed suicide in a national forest by shooting himself in the heart. Now, not every story ends in such tragedy. But many times when we take matters into our own hands, we make things worse in our lives. And that's the story of Abraham and Sarah here in Genesis 16. Like Abraham and Sarah, all of us face dilemmas in life. We face challenges in life. We face problems in life, difficulties, you name it, where we are, in a sense, we are tested to keep trusting in God in waiting for God to move in our lives. And like Abraham and Sarah, we are tempted to embrace the old adage, the false adage, by the way, well, God helps those who help themselves. And before long, we're running ahead of God, hoping that He will just approve of what we're doing, or at least help you clean up the mess that you've now made in your attempt to shortcut faith. So here's what we see in this chapter. And it just comes off the pages of Scripture to us. And we can state it this way. Running ahead of God to accomplish His plans with our ways is never a good idea. Listen, God calls us to believe that He is faithful to fulfill His promises. He does not want us to rush ahead of Him to accomplish His plan with our ways. He wants us to trust Him more than we trust ourselves. That means that the most courageous, the most countercultural thing that you and I can do is to have a faith and a belief and a patience to actually believe that God's way is better than your own way. Listen, Lawn Chair Larry is a is a prime example that sometimes people, even smart people, do very stupid things. And this is true not only of us here this morning, it's also true of Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 16 here, it now unveils for us the story of one of Abraham and Sarah's biggest lapses in faith. And intriguingly, Abraham and Sarah fault or not because they they want something that God has forbidden, nor because they had abandoned hope in God's promises. Instead, their failures here arise when they become so desperate for a son that God had promised to them that they are now willing to do absolutely anything to fulfill that promise of a son rather than wait on God's fulfillment of that promise of a son. And so Abraham and Sarah get impatient with God. They get impatient with the delay of his promise, and so they run ahead of God, they take matters into their own hands, and they suffer the consequences for it. Now the folly of their running ahead of God, it just we're going to look at it in three different scenes. And the first scene that we see here in chapter 16 is the scheme of running ahead of God. We saw in chapter 15 that God promised to bless Abraham with a son. And that that son would be from his very own seed. 
And God even sealed that promise with a covenant ceremony. We looked at that in chapter 15. And now after all of that, all that took place with that covenant ceremony, here we are, still no baby for Abraham and Sarah. God's promise seems to be endlessly delayed, even delayed beyond the point of being fulfilled. And so chapter 16 here begins with Abraham's ongoing, seemingly impossible problem in verse 1. Notice how it's stated. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. That's the problem, or at least the apparent problem. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So Abraham's problem is a barren wife. God's promise that Abraham would have a son, but Abraham and Sarah are still childless. That's the apparent problem. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting 10 years now since God's original promise came to them back in chapter 12. And now Abraham is 85 years old. Sarah is now 75 years old. And so God's promise, let me tell you, it seems rather far-fetched at this point in their lives. And so from a human perspective, they face a big problem. Sarah is already past the normal childbearing years. And, And so it's, in their mind, simply not reasonable to believe that a child would come through her. This is where Sarah and Abraham are in their thinking. She thought time had run out on her. And so now her and Abraham need to run ahead of God on this promise if they're going to have a son at all. And so Sarah thinks it's time for a little human intervention. But little does she realize that such interventions often prove disastrous. And so now we come to the scheme, the solution that Sarah devises. She proposed that Abraham could have a son through Hagar, her Egyptian servant. She says to Abraham in verse 2, now, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, just stop and ponder what she says about that. Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, that is true theologically. God did prevent her from bearing children thus far in her life. And it was hard for her to accept the Lord's sovereign plan in her life, especially when those plans for children, or lack thereof at this point in her life, are hard to understand. And so there's theological truth here in what Sarah says, and yet, at the same time, you can hear the bitterness in her heart coming out towards the Lord. God, this is, this is your fault. You promised us a son 10 years ago. I was hoping, I was waiting, but no child, and it's your fault, God. But the wheels are now turning in her head. She has a solution to help God out in the person of her Egyptian servant. After all, God promised a son would come from Abraham. But in chapter 15, God did not explicitly promise that it would come through Sarah. And so she gets a little creative here. 
But when you run ahead of God, you are essentially saying that you don't trust God, that you doubt his sovereign plan, and that you even know better than God. And so nevertheless, notice what Sarah tells Abraham in verse 2. Go into my servants, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, Sarah thought that this could be, this solution might be, could be, the answer to her prayer for a son. Not God's answer, but their answer. And what Sarah failed to see here at the moment is what many of us failed to see in the moment of our distress and in our problems when we are contemplating running ahead of God. And that is God's answers to your prayer will always be better than your answer to your prayer. As Kent Hughes says, Sarah's fatal choice of Hagar as the answer to her barrenness discounted the power of God. And so Sarah gives Abraham in marriage in order that he might conceive a son. And surprisingly, Abraham agrees to this. We read in verses 2 through 3, look at it. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. Now, this seems mind-boggling stupid to us. And I hope it does. I hope it lands on you that way because it was foolish and it was sinful. How could they have thought that this solution, this plan would go well? Imagine the conversation. Here, Abraham, take my servant as your wife and have sex with her. Maybe you can have a child with her and we'll just live happily ever after. Are you serious? It makes you wonder what in the world was Abraham thinking at this moment in his life. Does he not see the mess coming from this marital triangle? In, in Hagar, where, where, what's up with her? Where did she come from, this Egyptian servant? Well, she likely came. Came, if you remember the story back in chapter 12, she likely came from Pharaoh when Abraham, in another lapse of faith, flees from the land of Canaan due to a famine and flees to Egypt during that famine. And so even though they left Egypt with great riches from Pharaoh, those riches have complicated their lives. Pastor Chris talked about the complication of that with his nephew Lot in chapter 13. And so now we're seeing even more of those complications. Yes, God, he turned their folly into blessing from chapter 12, but there are still consequences from their folly in chapter 12. And now Abraham and Sarah are about to reap the the full abundant harvest of those consequences in their family and even generations to come. And it makes you kind of wonder as well, not just what was Abraham thinking, but what was Sarah thinking here? As scandalous As her plan sounds to us, keep in mind, this was a rather common solution in the ancient world in which they lived. In fact, it was very acceptable in that culture for a barren woman to conceive a child through a servant or a concubine. 
And so Sarah, she wasn't completely crazy in her solution here, but still, this was, this was not God's way for his promise. It was certainly not God's way for marriage. Listen, God's or Sarah's solution, it may have been socially accepted custom of the day, but it was still very much in disobedience for God's design of marriage back in Genesis 2. If you go to Genesis 2, you read what God's design is for marriage. That transcends all times, all generations, all cultures, and is even true for us today. It is one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for a lifetime. And you might be wondering, well, what about all the polygamous marriages among God's people in the Old Testament that you read about? Has anybody ever wondered that? Sure. We read all about them all through the Old Testament, especially among God's people. And I don't have time to give you an elaborate response or answer that question. Let me just summarize it this way. Remember, description does not always indicate approval. In other words, just because the Bible describes how people lived doesn't mean that God approved how they lived. And certainly, God did not approve of Sarah's solution here as the way to fulfill his promise of a son. You see, Hagar was the wrong solution to God's promise. Let me just throw out three observations about all this for us. The first observation is this. The solution of Hagar was Sarah's idea, and Abraham listened to her voice. Listen, there is a dramatic contrast between the previous chapter and this chapter. You read chapter 15, and there Abraham over and over again listened to the voice of God. But now here in chapter 16... It is very clearly stated by Moses, the author, that he listened to the voice of Sarah. In fact, that Hebrew construction there is only found in one other place. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, when the Lord said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, men, this is not saying, do not think this, it's not saying that to listen to your wife is how you always get yourself into trouble. So don't think that, men. In fact, it's usually the opposite. It's usually a very wise thing for us to listen to our wives. In fact, later on in Genesis 21, verse 12, God even commands Abraham to listen to his wife because in that instance, she is correct. She is right. But here in the Garden of Eden, Adam had received a command from God And he knew better, but he was passive. And he listened to his wife. And now here in Canaan, Abraham had received a promise from God in chapter 15. He knew better, and yet he's passive, and he listened to his wife here in chapter 16. And what's more, in both cases, both with Adam and with Abraham, in both cases, the wife, quote, took and gave to her husband. And so what we see playing out here 
is Abraham and Sarah are now repeating the very same mistake of Adam and Eve in the garden. And in both cases, there is an inversion of the proper spiritual leadership structure that God has ordained in the home. And the result in both cases was disaster. Both Adam and Abraham should have lovingly, tenderly, compassionately exerted their God-given leadership, but both were passive in this moment, and they went along with the foolish schemes of their wives. Second observation. The solution of Hagar seemed reasonable to both Abraham and Sarah. You see, Sarah's solution seemed reasonable because of one reason. It was socially acceptable by the culture. Oh, there is so much we could dwell on on that principle. There is much to learn from that alone. We don't have time to delve into it all, but let me just say, in taking Hagar as a wife, Abraham was motivated not by his lust, but rather by a very eager desire to have a son, which was not wrong. And as best we can tell, even Sarah's heart here was a mixture of both good and bad. She so wanted God's promise to be fulfilled that she was now willing to sacrifice, though, think of it, sacrifice the bond of marriage in her intimacy with her husband. As one commentator writes, though Sarah's motive was good, it was genuine, and involved self-sacrifice, the proposal was wrong in itself. And at the same time, wrong in its method of attaining the end sought. It was wrong against God, whose word had been given and whose time should have been waited. It was wrong against Abraham, leading him out of the pathway of patient waiting for God's will. It was wrong against Hagar and did not recognize her individuality and the rights in this matter. It was wrong against Sarah herself, robbing her of her high privilege as well as leading to disobedience. Oh, be careful here. Be careful not to embrace what's acceptable by our culture, but unacceptable by God. Just because something seems reasonable from our perspective and in our minds doesn't mean it is permissible for believers in Christ to participate in or to embrace. Third observation. The solution of Hagar capitalized on Abraham's impatience with God's promise. Listen, mark it down here. In attitude of impatience and distrust, it is dangerous. That is a very dangerous attitude to behold. Abraham was in too much of a hurry to see God's purpose fulfilled in God's way and in God's timing. And so now in his impatience, Abraham succumbed to the temptation to run ahead of God. And like Abraham, perhaps you are eager to see circumstances change in your life, to to see events unfold in your life, for God to move in your life, but you're growing weary of simply waiting for God to act. So what do you do? Listen, you must. You must choose. You must decide. You must determine to wait still for God's timing. 
God is not slow, but neither is he in a hurry. And most of all, you must continue that he is trustworthy. Continue to believe that he is trustworthy, and you can trust him. Remember, we talked about this last Sunday. We have a God, a promise, who is a God you can trust. Don't you just love the story of Abraham? It's a beautiful story. Because it's a story we all can relate to. In one chapter, he's coming through with these absolute flying colors. You just want to hand him a trophy of faith. Believing God, acting courageously and humbly. And in the next chapter, he's falling flat on his face in a lapse of faith. And all of us here can identify with one or the other, if not both. And we hold both in tension. Which brings us to scene number two, the disaster of running ahead of God. Now what we see here is what happens when people run ahead of God. And people try to accomplish his plan with their ways instead of God's ways in God's timing. Now, at first, at first, it looked like the, quote, Hager plan succeeded here in verse 4. Look at it. And he, that is Abraham, went into Hagar and she conceived. That was the whole purpose of the solution of Hagar. It's for her to conceive and have a baby. But then it all begins to fall apart. And to no one's surprise, or at least it shouldn't be surprised to any of us here, a plan which involves sending your husband to have sex with your servant does not go so well. In fact, what we see next here in the story is domestic disaster at its worst. Abraham's tent is now what we might call a dumpster fire of family dysfunction. Look at it with me. First of all, Hagar became pregnant. And then she became proud. You see this in verse 4. And he went into Hagar and she conceived and noticed her response. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. That is Sarah. She was prideful now. Think about the pain here for Sarah. And then think about the pride here for Hagar. It appears Hagar is so fertile that she gets pregnant on the very first try. In contrast to Sarah being barren, childless for decades. We're even alluded to this, even in chapter 11 at the end there, that Sarah was barren and had no children. So this is a decade of longing to have a child, and she can't have one so far. And so now Hagar it seems on the first try, gets pregnant, and now there is a spring in her step, there's a strut in her walk, there is now a disdain in her eye as she looks at Sarah with contempt. And what's interesting about this word contempt, it is the same word that is used back in chapter 12, verse 3, when God said, whoever dishonors you, Abraham, I will curse. Another translation says it this way. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And so in her pride, Hagar is now doing what God said not to do back in chapter 12. She is looking with contempt upon the promised couple of Abraham and Sarah, which brings us to the second observation. Sarah felt despised by Hagar and then blamed Abraham for it. 
Oh, how we love to excuse ourselves, don't we? Oh, how we love to blame someone else for our mistakes and our problems, don't we? Sarah blamed Abraham for the whole mess in verse 5. Look what it says. And Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with content. May the Lord's judge between you and me. And basically, with that last phrase, their statement, Sarah's now getting spiritual about it all by bringing God into it as if somehow God is responsible for the whole mess that they have created, which brings us to the third observation. Abraham tried to wash his hands of the whole mess by putting the responsibility back in Sarah's hand. Once again, Abraham is passive in this moment when he said to Sarah in verse 7, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Abraham is basically telling his wife, Listen, Sarah, it ain't my problem. It's yours. You deal with Hagar as you please. Which brings us to the fourth result of the consequence here. Hagar was treated harshly by Sarah and responded by running away. Look what it says in verse 7. This does not speak highly about Sarah. Then Sarai dwelt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And that phrase, dealt harshly, that's actually the same word where we get the word affliction in the Old Testament. Affliction. You might remember that when the children of Israel are in Egypt and they are suffering under the affliction of Pharaoh as slaves. Same word being used there. Sarah is now putting on her affliction, dealing harshly with her. Now, we don't know exactly what that affliction was. Was it physical? Was it emotional? Was it verbal affliction? Or was it just simply a cold shoulder or sarcasm toward Hagar, we don't know what it was. Here's what we do know. It was harsh. In fact, it was harsh enough that Hagar fled from Sarah. As so often happens in life, hurting people do what? Hurting people hurt people. And Sarah must have been hurting deeply here. Think about it. Sarah wants nothing more than to have a child. For 65 years, she's probably been dreaming about this. And so she devises this scheme, and it works, but then it backfires. There's her servant who's pregnant with her husband. What could be worse than this now? And out of this deep pain and hurt, Sarah is the one who ends up hurting the people in her family, the people closest to her. So what a mess we have here in chapter 16. Do you see what happens when you you run ahead of God and you try to accomplish His plans in your ways? And you're probably wondering, well, whose fault is this mess? Was it Abraham's? Was it Sarah's? Or was it Hagar's? Well, let me simply say, all three share the blame. All three are guilty of something in this story here. All three are sinners and all three desperately need the forgiveness of sins because they have also been sinned against. 
Abraham should have been exercising godly leadership in the family, but the scheme came to him through Sarah. Sarah, in turn, had no business turning against her maidservant since pregnancy was the intended result of her scheme. Yet in spite of that, Hagar owed proper respect to Sarah and Abraham. And inevitably, Hagar comes out of this whole mess the worst. Do you notice how she responded? She ran away. She ran away and she headed back where? Home. She headed back home to Egypt where she ended up in a wilderness all alone. And yet, Hagar, at the end of this story, is so very fortunate. There in the wilderness, she met the angel of the Lord. Which brings us to scene three. The grace of God running after the afflicted. This is one of the most, beginning in verse 7 to the end of the chapter, it's one of the most compassionate, loving, merciful, gracious scenes in all the Bible. This scene here is absolutely stunning. It is absolutely beautiful. And it reveals the character of our God. It shows us how marvelous God's grace is running after specifically the afflicted. It also shows us that you cannot run from God. You might try, but God will always find you, which brings us to the very first point. In your affliction, God finds you. In your affliction, God finds you finds you. God is so marvelous in his mercy toward the afflicted. And so in a very lonely and difficult moment of her life, God reveals himself to Hagar in one of the biggest ways possible. Notice it in verses 7 and 8. It's stunning. The angel of the Lord found her. Just think about that. This is the angel of the Lord. And he finds her, a servant, in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he says to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Oh, what mercy and grace here. How marvelous it is. The angel of the Lord finds her. And did you notice, what does he call her? He calls her by name. And you might have noticed it earlier on in the chapter, Abraham and Sarah never call her by name. They never mention her name. You see, to them, Hagar is simply my servant, that Egyptian girl. They don't even name her, but God here names her. And it is significant because by naming her, God is dignifying her. God is honoring her by speaking her name. And then God shows mercy to Hagar by asking her two specific questions. Do you see those questions? He says, where, where have you come from? And where are you going? There's such tenderness in those questions. Now, obviously, as the angel of the Lord, God, the Lord, already knew the answer to those questions. So why why would God be asking her those questions? Because God knows that Hagar is running from something. 
is specifically Hagar is running from her affliction being caused by Sarah. And the Lord wants her specifically to come to that realization. He wants Hagar to see that where she's running to is not the answer to her affliction. All through the Old Testament, running to Egypt is almost never the answer. When Abraham fled to Egypt, it was not the answer. And when Hagar wants to flee back home to Egypt, running from her affliction, escaping her affliction, it is not the answer either. This is why the angel of the Lord tells Hagar very specifically in verse 9, look at it, return to your mistress and submit to her. And by the way, the Lord says that for her own good. You must believe that about God. He says that to her for her own benefit, for her own good, not because God is seeking her harm. But still, this must have been very hard for Hagar to hear in this moment. And you can translate that verse this way. Return to Sarah and allow yourself to be afflicted. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to go do that. Why? Why would God say that to her? Why would God tell her, return to the source of your affliction and allow yourself to be afflicted? Why would God say that in love and compassion and in mercy and in his sovereign plan for her life? Because the Lord knows that blessing is found. Blessing, not by running from her affliction, but by living under Abraham's tent. You see, to abandon Abraham meant abandoning the blessing that was to be found in him and through him. We've already seen this play out already in the story of Abraham. And so the underlying principle here is that you cannot run to Egypt to escape your problems, and yet that's what most people do. It's human nature within us to run and escape our problems. But running is never the solution. In this situation, it is so interesting, the Lord does not give Hagar relief. And in the midst of our affliction, what is it we want most? We want relief. But God does not give her that. That is not God's answer for her at this moment. God says basically to her, go back, Hagar, and stick it out. I, I will help you through it. And you will be blessed. And as we'll see, Ishmael will be too. Which brings us to point two. In your affliction, God hears you. God is so marvelous in his comfort. Once again, God turns human foolishness into an occasion for blessing here. Notice the promise the Lord makes to Hagar in verse 10. This Again, this this is stunning. This is beautiful. See it with me. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That sounds very familiar to what God had already promised Abraham, does it not? Furthermore, in verses 11 through 12, the angel of the Lord said to her again. So three different times the angel of the Lord is speaking to her. Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, 
because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kingsmen. Now, what's interesting here is the name Ishmael means God hears. God hears. And so just think about this. The name of Hagar's son carries the deepest comfort for her soul. Every time she calls for her child, Ishmael, Ishmael, it is a reminder, God hears me, God hears me, God hears me. He hears me in my affliction. Hagar's son, yes, there's no doubt, part of the promise is he would prove to be a continual problem for Abraham's descendants. Ishmael will be a, a wild donkey of a man. He will be against everyone and everyone will be against him. And it's just another reminder here that sin always complicates our lives. And the effects of our sin are oftentimes lasting. There's no neat and tidy way of dealing with Abraham's and Sarah's sin here in chapter 16. If there were, there would be no need for the cross of Jesus Christ. But sin cannot be buried. You cannot sweep it under the rug. Listen, sin can only be atoned for and forgiven. And thankfully, oh, are you thankful for it? That is exactly what God has provided for us. Atonement and forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ, with his death and resurrection. Woo! So in your affliction, know this. God will find you. In your affliction, know this. God hears you. And then number three, in your affliction, God sees you. God is marvelous in his wonder. Hagar responds to all this. And her response, it is shocking in a good way. Her response is remarkable. Her response to all of this is incredible. Because her response, did you notice it? And I'll help you see it here. Her response, listen, where's the focus of her response? Is it on her or on God? It is all on God. Her response is not on her. And what a lesson that is for us. Because in our affliction, what do we tend to do? We have pity parties. And we're all focused on us, me, my affliction, my problems, how life is not working out for me. God, you said you were going to do this. Where are you? You're silent. You're delayed. And it's all about us in our pity parties. And she doesn't do that. That's not her response. Her response is all on God. Look at it with me. It is so awesome. He says, she does in verses 13 and 14. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have, been, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahoi Ra. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And so what she does here, she bestows two names, one on God and one on the well. And both of these names that she bestows celebrate the very same reality. The wonder that God sees her in her affliction. And so she named God you are a God of seeing. It's the only time a female has ever bestowed a name on God or confirmed a name on God. It is, uh, this is amazing here. 
And then she named the well Ber Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one, that is God who sees me. And so think about this. This is what's going on when Hagar felt all alone in the wilderness. She's by herself. She's in her affliction. She's running from it. She learns here firsthand that the Lord was watching over her, and her soul sang in response. When she ran away, the Lord ran after her. How marvelous is the grace of God. And then notice something else, what Hagar does. Because now she has a choice. I'm in between Egypt and Cain in the land of promise in the tent of Abraham. I'm in between I'm in the wilderness. I'm at the well. God found me. God hears me. God sees me. And God has told me what to do in this moment. And God is very specific. And now she has a choice. Do I obey or do I continue on to Egypt? Or do I go back to Abraham's tent? Notice what she does. Verses 15 and 16. And Hagar bore Abraham a son. And Abraham called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. The implication is she went back to the tent of Abraham. It all seems so matter of fact here at the end of the story, doesn't it? And yet there is... There is so much grace here at the end of this story. Grace not only for Hagar, but let me just point out, there is so much grace here for Abraham and Sarah in the mess they created. And the grace comes in the form of Hagar's son, Ishmael. You see, every time that they, Abraham and Sarah, called Ishmael's name, it was a very humble reminder that God hears. But it's not just a reminder. And by the way, can I simply say this? God's reminders to us are gracious as well as God's rebukes to us. God's rebukes in our lives are gracious. You see, Hishmael by going back to Abraham's tent. And now Abraham and Sarah have the opportunity to raise this child and calling out his name. It is a living he. He himself becomes this living rebuke of their lack of faith when they ran ahead of God. It is a reminder to them. But folks, it is a gracious, merciful reminder to them. God is not trying to hang it over their head. God is reminding them that back in your life, you should have known, I hear your prayers. I'm a God who hears, and you should have called out to me instead of running to head. But he's also, he is this living reminder, not just a living rebuke. He's a reminder to trust God even when his promises are delayed. So Ishmael becomes a rebuke, but he's also a reminder, and both are grace and mercy of God. 
Oh, there are so many lessons that come out of this story. But here's the most important lesson to take away and to apply to our lives today. And it is a lesson of hope. Don't run ahead of God. Don't run ahead of God. Run to God. Run to God in prayer and wait on Him to move in your life in His perfect timing. Listen, do you remember back in chapter 12? We saw in chapter 12 that when we, when we take matters into our own hands and we try to handle problems on our own, what do we do? We make a mess of our lives. A famine in the land. Abraham says, I can handle this. Flees to the land of Egypt. Makes a total mess of his life. And now here again in chapter 16, when we run ahead of God and we try to accomplish his plan with our ways, we make a bigger mess of our lives. And notice this, both times, Abraham and Sarah, did they get any closer to the promises of God? No. Both times, chapter 12 and 16, they did not get any closer to God's plan being fulfilled in their lives. In fact, they only added more heartache and pain to their lives as a result of their foolishness. In the words of Kevin DeYoung, just stick to the problems God has given you. Just stick to the problems God has given you. Don't go out and make new ones on your own. That's the lesson of this chapter. Rather, Trust God. Just trust Him. And remember that His way, God's way, is always the best way, no matter how farced it may seem, no matter how impractical it looks, no matter how delayed it is, or how impossible it may appear. God's way is always the best way. So don't run ahead of God. Run to God in prayer and wait on Him to move in your life in his perfect timing. Run to God with your doubts, your anxiety, with your cares, with your fears, and cast it all on him. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. Once again, and we pray that you would comfort us and you would convict us and challenge us by what you have shown us in your word this morning. Help us to see ourselves in this story, and more importantly, to see you, to see your grace and faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.